Welcome to Feasting on Design. I'm your host, Jason Frostholm. Today on the podcast, I'm talking with Hrog Nassanian, a product designer and founder of Wayfinder, a product line of wallets, notebook holders, and other soft goods. We chat about what makes designing for physical products different, his design process and how he works with clients, taking risks in life and how to move past that fear, plus a whole lot more. If you like the podcast and want to help support us, head over to patreon.com slash design. Every dollar helps us cover hosting costs, upgrade equipment, and keep the podcast going. When you become a Feasting on Design patron, you'll get access to exciting Feasting on Design news before anyone else, plus stickers and t-shirts. So please, help support the podcast by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash design. Prague, thanks for joining me this evening. Hey, Jason, thanks for having me. So let, let's let's dive in. You're because I think you're the first product designer, um, and oh, cool. that I've had on here. Um, Rad. Who is not a product designer in the web sense, and I don't know why I did air quotes because only you can see me. But um, <laughs> you know, yes. The, the the web and application people who refer to themselves as product designers that's a very different field. <laughs> Yes, yes, I, I, I uh, admire the work of the but they've they've um, they've taken my my role. Like you know, whenever whenever I'm if I'm looking for a, con- a contract gig or something, <laughs> and I type in uh, product designer, it's all UX UI designer. And I'm like, ah, that's not what I do. <laughs> so so want, so, yeah. what is your product design for people who just got confused by us going what? I thought that was the only product yes. design. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I, I maybe per, perhaps another way to describe product design is industrial design sure. or, or hard goods design or soft goods design. But I have to say, even now when I, when I search for soft good, soft goods design, even that, uh, goes into UX UI or software or something else design. But, but the kind of design that, that I've spent most of my career doing and that I have formal training in is, designing physical objects. Okay. I mean, I think that's one way to, to, you know, so that they're physical things that exist in the world. And, um, and I, I think my role is to, is to make the user experience better, mm-hmm. uh, in interacting and interfacing with these physical objects. Gotcha. So walk, walk me through, how did you get started? How did you get interested in that? Because that's a, you know, very different, from what a lot of designers do. Yeah. Well, I've, I've, I think I've always been creative and I've always wanted to, um, make things maybe different than the way that they are. I was, I've never been happy with the way things are even as a child. Sure. And, um, and so I think that's, that's probably how I kind of got into the design space mm-hmm. and, and also, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's, it's funny because like once, when you take a path, you don't think of any other paths that were, there were possible, you know? And so, so like from, from my point of view, this is the only way that I know, like I, I can't imagine that there was another way to go about things. And so, uh, so for me, it's always been, uh, I've always wanted to, to create things so that they can, 
these things can improve the lives of the, the, the users, um, the people that use the products. Gotcha. When, when I'm assuming you went to school for this, when, when you went yes. to school, where, did you study like industrial design or did you yes. study? Cause, cause I know you do sauce and I'll let you answer since you're saying yes, instead of cutting you off. Go ahead. <laughs> oh yeah. So yeah. So I, I do have a, like a formal education, uh, in product design mm-hmm. and I, industrial design, product design. And, um, and then my career has been focused on soft goods, which are typically objects that are soft sewn or made out of soft fabric materials, uh, as opposed to hard goods, which are, uh, typically, um, I mean, they could, they could be made of a multitude of ways, but sure. you know, typically injection molded, um, housings and solid parts, I guess it could be made out of wood or 3d printed these days. It could be 3d printed or, or milled out of a piece of metal or wood. But, but, um, most of my experience has been focused on, uh, soft sewn, soft welded, uh, soft woven and non-woven items. Um, so like which bags, for me, clothes, that sort of thing. Okay. Bags. Yeah. For me, it's been specifically focused on bags. I've never really gotten into apparel. I mean, I, I know that that's kind of tangential and also it's also soft good, but for me, it's been, it's been bags and small accessories. Sure. But when you think about clothing, that's usually more like fashion design and something along that. I I think so. And, and yeah, for me, I've, I've tried that. I've like, uh, maybe I was in a workshop at one point, maybe seven or eight years ago. And it was, it's kind of easy and kind of hard at the same time because, but for me, it felt limiting because it's a block, like, like, (laughs) like apparel is a block, like a a t-shirt. There's only so many ways you can design a (laughs) t-shirt. Exactly. And so like, so you're kind of like limited to the shape of the shirt or the item, the hoodie, the pants, whatever it is. And, and I'm sure there's an apparel designer out there listening and they're just gasping because they're like, what? There's so much creativity. But from my personal point of view, I just felt like it's somewhat limiting because it's just, it's really just pushing and pulling seams. But you know, the shape is always going to be the same. Whereas with, um, with bags, like, uh, the things that people carry always changes. So Mm -hmm. that need always changes over time. Like when I first started designing bags that they were, uh, kind of, uh, laptop bags Mm -hmm. and CD wallets. And that was like 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, (laughs) people were carrying CDs and DVDs. And and so so there were these little albums that had (laughs) sleeves that you could put CDs. I remember those well. Yes. Um, the, the, the form factor of the item, you know, the, the thing that you're carrying changes, you know, with it. So, um, which I think you can't say that about t-shirts. I think, probably like t-shirts or other apparel, like maybe a t-shirt or a hoodie or a dress shirt gets longer or wider or tapers. Sure. Um, you can add a pocket. It, <laughs> exactly. But it still has, you know, it's, it has a, it has a collar of some sort and it has sleeves. Right. People, has, people only oh, have one head and, you know, generally, exactly. generally two arms. Um, yes. Hopefully never more than that. Um, Yes, exactly. So yeah, I think people are probably evolving, you know, in some like incremental way, but yeah, we're not changing where we have more than one head and more than two arms. Right. So when, when it comes to designing bags, how do you, what's your approach to that? Because I mean, I realize you've got to think of like specific form factor of like what the bag's going to be used for and things like that. But what's, what's your jumping off point? Yeah. So 
for me, I'd like to get as much information as I can. So mm-hmm. like usually there's a product brief. If I'm doing a consulting project and I'm working with a client, I'd like to get as much information as I can, like who's using this, how are they using it? When are using it? Are they using it? Um, what are the situations? Like what's like a typical day that they're using this, this product? Um, are there any special environmental considerations? Um, so I try to get as much information as I can because that's going to determine, uh, what kind of materials I'm going to spec and the kind of nuanced details of those materials and the trims and then how it should fit, who it's going to fit on, uh, you know, like, like apparel, like footwear bags are, are worn on the body. Whereas like, Mm -hmm. I guess apparel, uh, you put it over the body. So it's important that, that, you know, you include that, I, you know, that kind of concept of this is something that goes onto someone's back or goes over someone's shoulder. So it has to fit, it has to be comfortable. So, so starting a project out, I try to get as much information as I can. Mm-hmm. And sometimes like when, when working with a client, they don't have that much information to give because they don't, they don't know. I mean, hopefully they should know, Sure. but if they don't, I can, I can either fill in the blanks or, you know, give it my best guess. And then we get a prototype back and then they, the client sees it. And then now they have all these like <laughs> opinions about things like, well, it can't be like this and it can't be like this. And, and like, I, you know, I mean, I, I can say like, I told like, why didn't you tell me this from the beginning? But, but, you know, sometimes you may not, if, if you're not doing this day in and day out, um, I work with a lot of kind of solo, solopreneurs, mm-hmm. if that's what, what it's called, like single person entrepreneur, single person companies, they have a great idea about something. And, and those people, they have really strong ideas about what they want mm-hmm. and I can help them make it a reality. But some people, they, they just don't have all those, those details. And so when you see it, then that's a, definitely an opportunity to say, Oh, it needs to be bigger. It needs to be smaller. Or actually I was thinking this or, um, and so I don't know if that answers your question, but yeah, well, I'm curious because for me, so I mean, primarily what I do is like branding design and marketing design and things like that. So when I get, yes, you know, when I get a brief, I sit down and, you know, obviously get as much like you do get, like you're saying, get as much information as possible. But I always start yes. with like sketches and things like that. And then, you know, I'm not necessarily presenting my client with a loose sketch, but I'll, I'll yes. present them with refined sketches before I take it in to actually build it out to kind of a fully formed concept that we can tweak from there is it, do you kind of do that too? Are you creating some sort of sketch or something? Yeah. Yeah. You know, before I even get into a sketch, once, once I get all the information that I can from a client, they're typically words, right? They're typically words saying this is how we want to be. And so I take that and I'll create an art direction or design direction, Mm -hmm. which is kind of what guides me to design the product. And so, so if they're saying that something needs to be really uh, sturdy or um, like very durable, then I'll look out into the universe for images of things that are also sturdy or durable or suggest that. Mm-hmm. And then that will kind of give me kind of a design language of things. Maybe, you know, like the proportions are really uh, um, bulky, wide, or there's certain, you know, instead of regular, 
and sharp. And that can kind of suggest that. So, so it's kind of like a, a back and forth play. Like a, a few minutes ago, I was saying, sure. I would create something and then show it to the, the client. And then they would say, Oh no, it's not like this. Right. Right. And so I guess like a step be- before that is taking the brief from the client and putting together a design direction, mm-hmm. which is kind of my visual interpretation of their verbal request. Sure. And then they see that and they're like, wow, this is really cool. And then a lot of, a lot of them will be like, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know why I'm paying you to come up with these images. <laughs> like, I just want you to design the thing. Like, I just want the thing. <laughs> and that's when the and red then, flags start going off and you start to run. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's, it's, I think, you know, like if I'm working with a larger organization, sure. they work with designers, they know how this works. Sure working with kind of a single person company, you know, single person entrepreneur startups. Um, it's kind of like bringing them along with the process, like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of teaching them and they, you know, they see it and they get it. And then once they go through it, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a leap of faith, sure. but once they go through it a little bit, they, they can see how everything connects and the, and the why behind the, what that I'm doing. Um, but yeah, at first they'll be like, why are you showing me these images or why are we doing this? Um, and I tell them like, this is what guides me. Like you've asked me to do something and I have to like, like I can't just sit there and just draw something. There has to be right. reason for me to do that. And, and kind of your parameters are part of that reason, but then design is visual and you're not giving me those, that those visual things. Otherwise you'd be doing it yourself. Sure. And so for me to kind of bring my own words and images together helps me identify from a design perspective, what you're asking for. And I can put that back to you. So it's, so it's kind of like a a back and forth communication. Like I get words from client and I give them words and images back. They kind of, you know, say, all right, this sounds good. It sounds like we're on track. It sounds like what you're asking, uh, asking, you know, it's, it sounds like, this is what we're asking you to do. And you're kind of giving us kind of a, a really higher level version of it. And then that becomes my marching order to now sketch, pull material swatches, start thinking about color, texture, finishes. Uh, and then it's a back and forth. And then, you know, whatever, you know, however big the project is, the first step could be just looking at some sketches um, and some material swatches. And, you know, that's, that's it. And then, and then giving back that back to the client and it's always kind of going back to the design direction. Cause that's like something that we all, you know, we all agree on. Yeah. Everybody's signed off on it. Everybody's agreed. This is, this is how we want to move forward. This is what we're going to yeah. do. And then you take from that. Exactly. And if something's off, then we have to, we have to look at the design direction and change that. And then, and then for some projects, you know, it's a larger project. It's not just me and I'm bringing on contractors to help. Sure. Um, design direction is, is very valuable. And I can present that to everyone working on the project to, to get them all on the same page so that, uh, they're able to, to deliver at the same capacity and level and most importantly direction. Um, so that in the end, if there's like, if I'm working with a mechanical engineer, um, a a CMF color material finish, um, person, uh, and I'm doing the design, then it all kind of, uh, coalesces and, uh, works well together. Gotcha. So when, when you got your start after in your career, um, I I know you went to work for like Targus, um, designing bags for them. 
Yes. I'm guessing that's where a lot of the CD cases came from because they did a ton yes. of those and, and the laptop yes. bags and all that stuff. Yes. And that, that's, you know, a fairly sizable organization. They're not, you know, mom and pop by any means. Um, yes. How does that work? That, that kind of process work? Because do you have like a creative director and a marketing director and all those people that you have to report to, to spec that stuff at when you're along the lines or how does that work? Yeah, I think, I think every, probably every organization is different, sure. large and small. And, uh, and I was at targets, I guess now it'd be 18 years ago. So it's been a while. <laughs> ago. It's, been a, it's been a while. And, and it, I'm sure the organization and everything, like even when I was there, it was, it was changing. Sure. Yeah, it was, it was changing a lot. Um, but 225 employees in their corporate headquarters and mm-hmm. in, in the design, the design product creation part, there was probably 12, eight to 12, uh, individuals. And in that organ organization, we design reported to the chief marketing officer Okay. and we got our briefs from the sales team. So it was, it wasn't like a consumer driven company. It was like a sales driven company mm-hmm. where there were a team of salespeople. They would go out to the retailers and the buyers would say, Hey, we love this like camera bag, but if we can get it for, you know, a lower price with these specific features, we you know, we'll buy a boatload of them from you. And so those salespeople would then come to us in design and say the same thing, like we need X, Y, and Z, you know, deliver it. And that was it. Like there wasn't design direction or it was uh, more just kind of the wild west. And sure. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, it was like, yeah, it wasn't that sophisticated of an organization <laughs> and I don't mean it. I don't mean that in a bad way, but it just, that's what it is. You know, like, like I, I do some consulting projects now with when I'm working one-on-one with another individual and you know, there's no, it's just like, just do this. Like, Hey, like I, I, I help with branding sometimes and that's, mm-hmm. that's not product design, but, but you know, it's like, all right, what can you do if I, you know, for three hours worth of your time? And so that's it. Like, I don't have the luxury of, sure. Of, doing research or iterations. It's just like, it just, it's whatever I can do in the next three hours. And so I'm not saying that it was like that at targets, but it just, um, wasn't as robust of a design organization. And a lot of times we wouldn't even like, we would do these renderings sketches that led to renderings and the salespeople would pitch that. And we would, we wouldn't even know if that was getting made or anything made into a product. We wouldn't see samples. We wouldn't see prototypes. And then some things they would come back and like, all right, this is great. Let's let's make a tech pack so that we can request samples. Gotcha. Well, and, and part of the reason I specifically asked about Targus is they're one of those places that their bags and stuff are always have like tons of features and are loaded with all these pockets and different yes. places to put things in. There's so much yep. to put in there. And then with the stuff that you're doing now, it's extremely minimal yes. minimalist. How do you, you know, how do you, how do you transition from one to the other? I mean, I realize one's more of a, it's your company, it's your product. So it's a personal choice, but yes, when you're creating that linear path, how does that happen? Yeah, totally. Well, I think, I think as a designer, we're tasked with always creating things that don't exist, things that are new, but not only new, but better. Sure you know, shame on me if I'm creating something that's just new and exciting, but not better than something that was, that it's replacing. Right. Right. And so, you know, like, I think it's, it's, it's in the DNA of a designer as you know, to 
be able to make something new, better, different. And, and that could also mean, you know, going from something that's super commodity, like feature driven to Mm -hmm. something that's very elevated and minimal, like, you know, or, or it could be something, you know, whatever, you know, whatever, if that's like a, if that's like a flavor or a veneer, you know, your, your show is, it has to do with food and, (laughs) and that sort of thing. So if I can make a food analogy, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's similar. Like, you know, if, if it could be, something that's really restrained with, you know, like a really refined flavor or it could be something that's like kind of in your face with bold, robust flavor, you know, mm-hmm. it could be, I don't know, wasabi <laughs> compared to barbecue sauce or, sure. or yeah. No, no, no that's good. That. It's you, you've got, you know, simple one note, but it, it does everything that it needs to do versus this highly complex thing that, has a specific purpose. Yes. So that, that, that's yeah. summing up. I think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, yeah. And, and just to like, to answer it in a really kind of succinct way, like, like I think as a designer, you can do it, you know, like if, if, if you're tasked with doing something that's minimal, you can do it. If, if you're tasked with something that, that is, that has like all the bells and whistles, you can do that. It's just, it's just a different spec package and, and a different design direction, but it's, um, yeah, it's no big deal to, sure. to, sh- to make that, that kind of shift. Sure. Speaking of making shifts, when, when you leave, yes. tar- when you leave Targus, where do you end up going? Uh, I went to Nike in 2003. Okay. So at Nike, obviously big sports culture and things like that, you know, those, yes, w- you're creating for yes. Targus is, very one note on consumer levels of totally there, there's not a big user pro difference difference in user profiles between somebody who needs a laptop bag versus somebody who needs CD cases and things like that. But when you get to Nike, yes. you're creating for, you've got, you know, things that are, you know, consumer grade and you've got things that are, you want like pro athletes to be using and yes. things like that. How does, yes. how do those, differentiate how do you create those user profiles in your mind totally so yeah i mean i think at first at at first it's a big it's a big it was a big difference for me to go from from always designing for the same consumer to now there's like like nike has multiple i mean nike says if you haven't if you have a body you're an athlete so Mm -hmm. everybody is an athlete everybody is a consumer um but then drilling down further there's silos of like there's product, class, I don't know the exact word, silo product for classification, but there's categories of there's sports, right? And sure. so, so it's designing for different sports and, and that designing for each sport, there's some features that are common to all. Mm-hmm. And there's some features that are specific to that sport. Okay. And so, so part of it is, is learning, excuse me, it's, it's learning and getting up to speed on specific consumers mm-hmm. and, and their, their needs. And then also learning about just, you know, like the culture of sport. Mm-hmm. And again, my focus at Nike was carry, carry products, backpacks, duffels, gym sacks, totes, uh, bags of all sorts of variety. Bag. Yes. All for athletes. But, and, and so there are some commonalities that you're always solving for, like moisture management. It was always, is always like, it's a part of every sport. Like, like you've got, you know, you start with a clean set of, of, you know, workout clothes or mm-hmm. soccer kit, 
And then after you're done, you've got stinky, sweaty stuff, right? Right. And so, so moisture management is always important. Like putting that in your bag, breathability, ventilation is always big. Um, and then, and then, but, but, you know, Nike is described as a matrix organization, mm-hmm. um, because it's so big and there's so many variables. So you're always sure. communicating to different people internally, externally, and the message is always different, but, but also it's a global company. It's a global organization, right? Mm. And the consumer is a global consumer. So not only is it important to learn about, let's say the soccer player or the, the global football player, but, but what does that look like for a global football player in the U S what does it look like for that player, that, that athlete, um, in Europe, what does it look like? in, in Asia, for instance, in, in Tokyo, the kid that plays soccer, uh, maybe rides his bicycle to the train station. And Mm -hmm. then from the train station, he walks to see, or she walks to school. Um, and so he, so he has to have a, they have to have a bag that can likely fit over their shoulder. Maybe it's a backpack, maybe it's a shoulder bag Mm -hmm. that fits into a basket. That's a really standard size basket on their bike. And then they can negotiate it while they're on a train. And so having their, their hands free and their center of gravity kind of centered makes sense to carry a backpack or a shoulder mm-hmm. bag. And then they don't have, um, they may not have lockers. Um, so, um, I've, like I've seen lots of little changing, changing rooms. Um, and so like these all, they're, they're all different, um, kind of scenarios. Whereas, uh, that, that same kid in let's say Southern California, uh, if they're not driving, their parents are driving them. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a trunk. So, so the bag goes in a trunk, the kid's not carrying it any distance. Sure. It's all the time. It's not raining. So like water resistance, resistance isn't important. Um, and so it's always different. Whereas in Europe, like that same kid is probably walking, taking the subway or a train. Um, maybe crime is, could be potentially be a problem. And so, so they want to like roll that bag around like that duffel and carry it, um, on, um, on their chest instead of on their back. And so Mm -hmm. the variables are different. So, so I think uh, the complexity of the consumer and juggling all these different things, it just, it increases going from like, kind of like a one dimensional consumer. That's probably like, uh, you know, 30 to 50 something corporate, probably male, 70, 30 male split consumer, which is probably what targets is. I'm not sure. Um, now, um, and so dominantly in, uh, office of supply retail stores or corporate programs where you work at this large corporation and on your first day you get a laptop and you get a laptop at. Sure. Or TJ Maxx, you know, after the end of the season. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and we, yeah. And, and at Target, we work with TJ, TJ Maxx as well. So, yeah, so totally, yeah, like I, I would say like going from like a kind of a simple consumer to a multifaceted uh, globe, you know, a consumer that's different. Yeah, so there's all these different variables like, right. you know, designing for kids that are that are 13 to 20 something and in different for different sports, different geographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's different price points, you know, like uh, internally in Nike, there's, 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 and you can see it. It's, it's no secret. Sure. You can, there's, pro- there's value driven products that you could find at probably like a department store or a sporting goods store. 
Then there's like better level product that you may find at like a Nike, a Nike door. Um, and then there's like better best level product that you can also find at a Nike door as well as like, um, sport specialty kind of stores. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, so there's all these, you know, there's like 20 different levers and, um, I think the first step is understanding those levers Mm -hmm. and then figuring out, um, how you're going to approach each one. Like this is, and, and a lot of this stuff is included in a detailed brief. So it's like, this is for the Tokyo, predominantly for the Tokyo consumer at this price point for this sport, this scenario. Yeah. Well, and and part of the reason I, I was asking that is because Nike is also a very design driven company and they try to push boundaries a lot of times. So, you know, how do you, you know, in that situation, how do you research and keep ahead of the game and, and, you know, elevate yourself to the next level with each iteration? Totally. Yeah. I would have, yeah, I would, I, that, I would have to say that that's a, that was a really interesting shift going from Targus to Nike where at a place like Targus, you're kind of looking outside for trends mm-hmm. and inspiration and going to Nike where you're in a position where you're creating those trends. Mm-hmm. Like you're definitely reaching out to get inspiration, but your inspiration they're not necessarily products. Like you're, I'm not, you're looking not looking at the, you're not looking at the guy next door to see if he's making a similar bag. So you can copy off that and, you know, get the same sort of idea. Yes. Or even take inspiration from that. It's, but it's more like looking at other, other industries, other product classifications, mm-hmm. uh, or, or just like just far out stuff that, that may not even relate to consumer products you know, looking at architecture and speaking with architects. Like I remember planning an inspiration trip, um, and meeting with architects and, and, uh, and getting inspiration that way based on kind of what's their process. Like just, just like how you're asking me about my, my design process, Mm -hmm. but you know, tapping into other industries and and learning about what drives them to create, you know, something new. And then also internally at Nike, there's, there's tons of work that's done you know, around seasonal design, brand design direction. Mm -hmm. And and then on a yearly basis as well. And I'm sure it's changed since the, the, uh, three or four years that I've, that I've been there. Um, but there's a lot of information that's created internally, uh, to support, you know, designers like color forecasts and fabric forecasts and things like that. Everything. Yeah. Color product. Yeah. Product use just, you know, the culture. Yeah. I mean, Nike at Nike, one thing that's really important is storytelling Mm -hmm. and also creating things that are, uh, led by, you know, data driven that you're not just designing something arbitrarily, but it's, it's, there's, there's been research done. And if, if it's footwear or whatever, like this footwear pattern, uh, has greater traction, or control because of all this data that, that, uh, that they've gotten from testing that they've done. And so it's, it's, um, you know, I don't, I, I think generally speaking, design is no longer arbitrary. It's not something, no. I mean, there's definitely like, you know, like if you put five different designers together, give them all the same information and data they're they're still going to come up with radically different solutions to things, but but I, I think that's the the difference between like art and design. Like mm-hmm. design is is driven by. It's not subjective. 
improving the user exactly so when when you're getting all that data and you you get all that information how do you personally distill that down into finding what the basic building blocks are that you need yeah that's a good question so i don't think there's a simple way and i think it's different for every product project sure but the way that i do it is i just i just try to juggle like i listen and take in everything you know if it's if it's like speaking with consumers athletes whatever it is you know the end user speaking with them, learning about how they interface and interact with like the current product that exists, understanding what their pain points are, you know, understanding what they love about their current product. Um, and then asking them, you know, aspirational questions like, like outside of, outside of like the product itself, which Mm -hmm. is usually a bag for me, but like about them and like, you know, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to achieve? And is there something that I can do for the design of that product to help you achieve your kind of, your kind of goal. And so it's, it's taking all that, it's just taking all that information. And then when I'm getting to sketching and, and thinking about it, that's where the distillation happens of putting, you know, making decisions, right. Cause some things aren't going to work or, or some things aren't going to show up um, as much as some other things are going to show up. So, so, yeah, I mean, I don't think that there is a hard and fast rule to how, you know, the hierarchy of things that show up in a design mm-hmm. or like, or like the, you know, the objective qualities that we're looking for. I don't think that there's a hard and fast rule, but it's just it's just going through that iterative process of design mm-hmm. and kind of. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's the magic of what we do. <laughs> <laughs> of we of what we do as designers, it's 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 magic. Um, yeah, I don't I don't have you know, like it's, it's different with every project it's sure. different, and it's different every time. Like even at Nike, like I, I was there for 12 and a half years and I worked on, uh, collections of training bags. Like every two years they do a refresh mm-hmm. and it's always different. You know, it's always, the consumer may be the same. The price points may be the same. The data may be the same, but the solution is always different, you know? And part of that is like, as from, from a design point of view, like where, like, let's say all these variables, they're all like laid out on a table. It's like, as a designer, I have a flashlight and it's my role to shine the flashlight where I want. Like, where, where do I decide to place the focus mm-hmm. while still catering to the needs of the brief and, you know, whatever it is, all the variables, like making a product that's, that's, you know, environmentally friendly or, you know, all, all that stuff. And so... Yeah, it's a hard question to answer. Sure, no, and part I understand. Of it, I think is magic. Yeah, no, I I agree. I, I I have a hard time articulating that. That's why I always ask it. <laughs> I think I'm trying to find the answers that I can give. <laughs> um, yes. When when you make the shift from Nike to go out on your own, yes, you know, what does that look like? How do I mean? Because it, it it's very different to go from working inside this mega corporation to being a team of one. Yes. And, and, and running all that stuff. What, what was that shift for you that made you decide to do that? Yes. Yeah. So it it was, it was quite a big shift and one that, 
that I didn't know would be that big and that different. Um, I don't know what it's like to be an astronaut to go into outer space <laughs> and to come back atrophied. But I feel like like leaving the corporate world was like leaving outer space and coming back to Earth. Mm-hmm. Like I just like I, I needed to develop all sorts of new skills. Mm-hmm. Like whatever made me successful in the corporate world wasn't going to make me successful out in the I don't want to use the word real, but out in the, the world where I'm on my own. Right. Because in the corporate world, especially at a place like Nike, like everyone has a very specific role and you're doing a very specific task and there's an entire support system around you to support what you're doing. And in essence, like, you know, in design, you're supporting other functions. Sure. And so, but basically everything is laid out. Every, everyone knows that every, every uh, function works harmoniously together and kind of, you know, fills all the voids and excuse me. And it's like this well-oiled machine that produces new products every 18 months mm-hmm. or I guess every, I mean, there's four seasons, but, but every, you know, every three weeks there's a new product. Right. Right. And so going from, from that where I, I've basically plugged myself into a calendar, into an organization, with all kinds of people around me that kind of do their roles that kind of support the general idea of creating product to just this like void of like anything is possible. And, you know, it's, and in one way it's, it's, it, it was, um, kind of crippling because when anything is possible, it's like, what do you do? It's mm-hmm. like, not, it's like nothing becomes possible because it's like, like, it's just, it's like a blank sheet of paper. You know, sometimes people are really intimidated by, by a blank sheet of paper, right? It's like, yep. where do I start? What do I do? And so, so I went from this kind of like super structured situation to nothing, this void, complete void. And so, so that took a lot of, at first it was really exciting. It's like, wow, I can do this. I can do this. I can do this. But then it's like, well, what am I going to, what am I going to do? What, what is the thing that I'm going to pick to focus on and to do? And so that was a big learning curve. And then also building all kinds of new muscles to, to build the infrastructure around me to make stuff happen. You know, if I wanted something to happen, it wasn't like it was, that system wasn't set up around me. I had to create it. Gotcha. When, when you're, when you get past that that paralyzing atrophied fear <laughs> that uh, yes. I think everybody who owns, who's done their own thing at some point experiences, you know what what do you sit down what what makes you sit down and decide you know on top of all that I want to create my own product. Yes, yes. Well, I had wanted to create my own product for many years, but. But, you know, like working in a, in a comfortable kind of environment for a big company, it's, it's hard to let that go. It's hard to let go. It's hard to let go of, of a known quantity to grasp in the air at straws sure. for something that you don't know. Sometimes that's called golden handcuffs, velvet handcuffs. Um, but, it, but it's, I mean, it's life, but it, it's, you know, it's like, it's a, it's a big risk. It's a big risk to, mm 
to just go and, and do something. And so, um, I, I had, I had read it many times. I've read many times in books and podcasts and things like that, where it says, if you have an idea about something, do it now, like start now, start now while you're working for someone else, you know, chip <laughs> away at it, do it now. And f- for me, I wanted to, but you know, I just didn't have enough drive left in me at the end of the day after sure. I had given it all I've got. And I wasn't hungry. I wasn't hungry enough to go do it. No, I, so de- like, I definitely like, understand that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's so it was a multi, yeah, it was a multifaceted thing. It's like, it's like I was very comfortable and I, there wasn't a whole lot of creativity left at the end of the day for me to be like, all right, great. Now, you know, I've like, I've done my, my day job and now I'm going to do this. It's like, I'd rather go out and ride my bike or, <laughs> or go out with friends or, you know, or whatever it was that I was doing, you know, four or five years ago. Sure. Or, or even if it's, you know, just a tough day, sometimes you just want to be a vegetable and turn your brain off completely. That too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So that, yeah, I, I completely understand where you're coming from. It's, it's, it's easy when you've got that full-time job, working for someone else to, I don't want to say become complacent because I don't think that's the right term for it, but you've left everything on the table there for your job, which is understandable. That's, that's what they hire you for. Yes. But finding the time and making the time to do the things that you want to do after that is a real challenge. And it definitely takes a special breed of person and, you know, to, to fight through that tiredness and to find some more inspiration to do something further. Totally. Yeah. I admire those people that you and they're able to, you know, plan out their, their lives. Like, all right, this is what I'm doing now. And, and I'm working towards, you know, X, Y, and Z to kind of, this is going to come to fruition in two years. You know, they have all this, like this master plan. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I really admire that. But, but yeah, sometimes there's just not enough focus left energy left or creativity. I mean, even now my creativity gets zapped and I don't know if it's maybe I'm getting older or, or just like, you know, like there's only so many kind of creative things that my brain can do during the course of a day or how, you know, like there's only so many decisions that I can make. So I try to like front load the most important things in the, in the beginning of the week, Mm -hmm. in the morning. Um, and then if it's not working, I just like, you know, shut the computer down and and get out the door and do something else. I don't find it. Do you, do you find that, you know, because now being self-employed, you've got to take on 70 different roles, you know, do yes. you find that the non-creative administrative, those sort of things are more draining than you expected or, or, or do you do you save them trying to figure out the right way to ask this? Do you find that, you know, when you're working during the week, do you try to get all the creative stuff done right away? Or do you try to get the administrative stuff out of the way first and then focus on creative? Yeah, I wish, I wish that I could look at it that way. Like, all right, the creative stuff's going to be done first, but, but really like I do the things that are the most pressing and the most important, the highest priority, and now for, for my business, whether it's my consulting business or it's for uh, my own brand of accessories, it's whatever I think will bring me the greatest return on, on investment, mm-hmm. whether it's 
the, the time that I put into it or, or it's the, the, you know, the, the money that I'll get back, um, from doing that thing. And so that's, that's kind of the hierarchy of, of my actions. Like, like if I spend an hour doing this, then the return on investment can be, you know, can be huge for this one thing. And so I try to focus on that and, and I have a to-do list. It's just a simple note file on my phone and the least important things always kind of go down the list. And I, I, every day I look at it and I look at it like, all right, this is the most important thing. So I'm going to work on this first. Uh, And so that's kind of, that's kind of how I, how I approach it. And a lot of the stuff is not fun. Like the, you know, like I had to file an an extension for my corporate taxes and that's coming up in the next few weeks. And it's just like, Oh, I hate that. It's just like, Oh, it's just not fun. And, and yeah, as a creative person, like there's a lot of other things that I'm not really good at. Like I'm not good at, you know, I'll be honest. I'm not good at like keeping receipts and paperwork and streamlining this process. It's, it's a mess. And it's something that in the next few weeks I have to dive into it. I have to, you know, I have to dive into it. And there's a lot of things like that that are just, um, it's just, it's just, that's just how it is. You know, I, you, you have to do it whether, whether you enjoy it or not, I have to do it. Um, and yeah, some things are draining. They are like more draining. And I, and I like in the past, like when I worked at Nike, they they would, um, every few months there would be some sort of offsite where you learn about your personality and you learn about your, how you work with your team and all this other stuff. There's, they're called different things, but I remember one of them and I don't know what it's called, but it's like a strength finder. Maybe mm-hmm. it's, maybe it's called strength finder. I don't know, but there's like some, there, there's some things that, you know, that you, that I do, that you do, that we, there's some things that people do that they're good at and it brings them joy. And there's some things that people do do that they're good at and it drains them, you know? Yeah. And in the corporate world or when you're working in a large organization, you're kind of able to, you know, do the things that, that you're good at and it brings you joy. Um, when you're on your own, you kind of have to do everything until you grow up to be big enough so that you can have other people <laughs> do the things you, know, you don't do enjoy. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Like my brain hurts a little every, and I say this often, I say this often to whoever I'm working with, my brain hurts often like (laughs) metaphorically from learning and doing new things. And it's like, it's great. Like it's super exciting. Like last week I couldn't do this Mm -hmm. and this week I can. Do I want to do this again? And no, I just did it because like it would have taken me a lot of effort to do that thing and to pay them to do that thing. Whereas if I just spent a little bit of time doing some, you know, research, watching some YouTube videos, then I could learn how to do it myself. And then an hour later it's done. It's over. Sure. Um, and so I, I think that, that from, I can only speak for myself. Everyone, you know, every organization is different. Um, I do find myself doing a lot of things that I be, I may become good at, but it doesn't bring me joy. It kind of drains me. And I don't want to do it again. And my goal is that is that as my organization and my company and, and um, revenues grow, then I can just farm that stuff out to other people um, who who are really efficient at it, and they probably enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Well, let, let's talk a little bit now about Wayfinder. Speaking of bringing you joy, and yes. and and f- how you know how you got to 
the point where you're deciding on the products you're going to make and, and how you're going to make them and all that. How, how, walk me through that. Yeah, you got it. So my first inkling was to work on bags because that's, that's my core competency mm-hmm. as a professional. I, I don't know how many bags I've designed and developed, um, probably in the hundreds, if not, I don't know, maybe over, maybe over a thousand. I don't so, know. So it's well in your wheelhouse. It's in, it's in my wheelhouse. Exactly. Um, but, but then thinking about it from like, a from like a strategic point of view, like it, it kind of is a big effort to design a backpack on your own, mm-hmm. uh, you know, relative to a one person organization and people do it all the time. And so from my point of view, it was more important to do something that, um, that was smaller, um, so that, so that it would just be easier, easier to develop, um, and easier to ship, easier to, uh, to market, easier to retail. You know, if I want someone to consider carrying my, um, my accessories in their retail store, it's probably easier to consider carrying a small wallet mm-hmm. or a card holder or a passport holder than it is if I roll into that retail store with a backpack and a duffel, you know, it's a, it's a much bigger decision for them. And also for a consumer, if, if, you know, it's probably easier to, to buy something small under a hundred dollars, potentially under $50, you know, some of my items are under $50, uh, than it is to commit to a new backpack that, uh, that, that could very well be over a hundred, $200. And so this is, this is part of the process, um, of why I decided to start with accessories. It's somewhat, I mean, I'd like to think it's somewhat of a Trojan horse. (laughs) It's like, it's like the MVP, you know, I've, I've read a lot about the minimal, minimal viable product. Sure. And for me, you know, I have a small collection of three or four, um, products in my, in the first collection, And, and I didn't release one product, but I released small products that, Mm -hmm. that, um, if I, if I order a thousand of them, which typically is the MOQ minimum order quantity, when you order, uh, products from a factory, you know, a thousand backpacks will fill up an entire container that has to go on a boat. Sure. Um, a thousand small accessories, uh, you know, can fit into a small box. That's, that's, you know, probably 12 by 15 by 18, um, you put it on a plane, air cargo, and it still doesn't cost that much. Mm-hmm. And you get it within, you know, you get it seven to 10 days after it goes through customs. Sure. So, so that was more palatable than, yeah, smaller accessories were more palatable, um, for a multitude of reasons, you know, lower, like uh, financial investment from my part, um, smaller physical footprint. Um, and then they're, they're, you know, small accessories are relatively, um, high value items that don't take up that much space. Mm-hmm. So it's, it doesn't cost much to ship. It doesn't cost that much to warehouse. Um, recently I've listed my products on Amazon and the fees for them to, to warehouse, you know, to warehouse it or whatever they do with it is negligible. It's, it's, it's like next to nothing. Um, if they have to hold it for a long period of time, it's like next to nothing. And then shipping it is next to nothing. You know, like most of my shipments, uh, the packages that I ship are, uh, f- maybe, uh, four to 12 ounce four to, they're probably like four to six, four to seven, four to eight ounces. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's, it doesn't cost much. Like I, I, I don't, the customer 
part of the pay for that, absorb that cost. It's nothing. And yeah. so that's, that's why I wanted to start with smaller items. Gotcha. And build that, you know, build the brand. You know, for me, I want people to fall in love with Wayfinder as a brand and the small accessories, that is the vehicle to kind of make that connection with consumers. They think, wow, this product is so durable. It's so minimal. It's so lightweight. It's so easy to use. Um, it, it helps me to carry less. Like, like as a brand, Wayfinder stands for helping people shape their future by making subtle behavioral changes. And typically that's to carry less. So as a brand, we're helping consumers carry less, which is kind of ironic. It's this kind of two things, two opposing things, you know, like, sure. like I have a brand of carry goods, but I want to encourage people to carry less. And, um, and so, and so that was kind of the decision-making process for, for why, I, why I started with the collection that I started with that happens to not be bags, but it's, it's, it's very close. Gotcha. Well, let's walk through those products. You've got kind of like a card holder, a billfold, yes. and then a um, passport kind of notebook holder thing. Um, yes. Walk me through each of those. Yes. So the smallest item is the Flux card holder. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I don't know, I, I'm not looking at the specs right now, but it's like 21 grams. That's that's how much it weighs. It's next to nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's less than four millimeters thick when it's empty or for less than four millimeters thin. Um, parts of it are even thinner than that. And it's just really simple. And mm-hmm. it holds probably eight to 12, eight to 13 uh, cards, uh, business cards, credit cards, and you can carry a few bills or excuse me, or if you have more bills, you can carry more bills and fewer cards. Um, and so this is the I can't remember the last time I had bills. <laughs> yeah. Typically, yeah, typically I don't like this is I'm, um, holding up from the flex card holder now and I don't have any bills in here, but when I did, it would be like one $20 bill sure. or just, just as an emergency. Like if I'm somewhere where there's no ATMs mm-hmm. and cash is the only option, um, but in different parts of the world, it's different. And, and this is, this is meant to be carried. And, th- and this comes from my experience working at Nike, like thinking about products from a global consumer perspective, you know, in Japan, they have the largest, uh, business card. So this fits business cards, uh, you know, domestic to Japan. So if, if you're in Japan, you get a business card, it'll fit into the flex card holder, no problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and then in different parts of the world, like cash is, well, it's certain like China, everything is done on their phone. So yeah, everything's a QR code. Yes. And, and they pay everything through their uh, WeChat, the app mm-hmm. and, and then they tap their phone or whatever they do. Um, but so there's, there's no credit cards. I, as far as I know, I don't think there are credit cards and cash is probably, you know, maybe some vendors ca- take cash, but Minimal. predominantly yeah. of course today it's, it's using your phone to pay for things and all that stuff. Um, but every country is different. And, and so, and so there's definitely a use for this. Um, but in some countries they do use cash more than cards. Um, but the focus of the flex card holder is just to limit the amount of items that you carry. So like if I get a receipt, which I, I do, then it, it, it forces me to make a decision right then and there. Like, do I need to keep this receipt? Mm-hmm. If so, then I can take a photo of it and throw it away or I can take it home and file it away that day. But the key thing is I'm not keeping it with me. Whereas if I had 
you know, many years ago, if I had a bigger wallet, then I would just be like, Oh yeah, thanks. Thanks for the receipt. I just put it away. And then you end up with the six inch thick dad wallet. Next thing you know, you're, you're George Costanza, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Big wallet. So yeah. So the, the flex card holder is the smallest item, um, in our, in our collection. Um, just under four millimeters thick and about 21 grams. Mm-hmm. Um, the corners are rounded. So it, 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 uh, reduces the x-ray effect that it has. Like, you know, when, if you carry your phone or any item in, let's say in your jeans pocket, mm-hmm. like over time, it's going to wear, it's going to show a wear pattern. Oh, okay. And so with, with the rounded corners and here's the you know product design coming into play with the rounded corners, it, uh, and all the items in the first collection have rounded corners. So it's just, sure. it, it makes for, uh, um, a, a more minimal footprint mm-hmm. with, and then with the billfold, you know, I, I watched the video. You've got it where it's designed for different types of currency, correct? Yes. Yeah. For the, for the billfold. So the next item is the daybreaker, uh, billfold wallet mm-hmm. and it can hold boarding pass. So it fits a boarding pass and, and for boarding passes, you know, and many times they're digital. Like I'm very familiar with that, mm-hmm. um, that, that they are digital. Um, but typically when you travel internationally, you may not have the specific app on your phone. Maybe you don't even have data to be able to access the app or, or the web page or whatever it is. Um, and so to my knowledge, um, a lot of times when I fly international, uh, it's always, it's always a physical boarding pass. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so it, it holds a boarding pass. And so, and really the, the, the use for that is limited, right? Sure. You're going to get a boarding pass at the airport and then you're going to, you're going to use it when you get on the flight and then you don't need it. Maybe you need it for, for doc, if it's a business trip, you need to document it. That's kind of a receipt. Um, but making, making a, a wallet, um, big enough to hold a boarding pass also affords you the luxury of carrying currency from around the world. Like mm-hmm. the 500 Hong Kong dollar um, I believe is like 81 or 82 or 83, uh, millimeters long. So it's almost nine centimeters long. Uh, boarding pass, I believe is 88 centimeters, uh, 88 millimeters long or almost nine centimeters long. So by making a wallet carry a boarding pass, you're covered off on every other currency, um, in the world, um, that, that you could possibly put in there. Mm-hmm. But despite that, despite the ability to carry currency from around the world and a boarding pass, the Daybreaker wallet is seven millimeters thin. Wow. And so, so recently I got my, I mentioned earlier that, that I listed my products on, on Amazon right, and right, I just right. got my first, my first review on Amazon, which is a big deal on Amazon, right? Like, yeah. especially if you're a brand that you're, people aren't familiar with, like I shop on Amazon all the time and, and, uh, and Amazon has been the gateway to buying pr- products from brands that I'm not familiar with. And the way that I can buy that product is you read the reviews and someone wrote a review. Um, and they're like, I love this wallet because, because even with all my stuff in it full, it's still thinner and lighter than my previous wallet when it was empty. <laughs> Yeah, I've got, I, I mean, I don't have the George Costanza wallet, but mine's, you know, your stereotypical leather wallet that, you know, it's, you know, it's not, it's not small. It's, it's got a footprint to it and it's, you definitely, 
you know, by the time I put my driver's license and a couple my debit card, a couple debit cards and credit cards and whatever else I've got in there, it it takes up it takes up a little bit of space. Um, yes. So let's talk about the passport holder. Yes. And then tell me about that. Cause that's, I think that's the one that I saw. That's probably the most multifunctional because you don't have yes. to just put a passport in there. You, and you could put cards in there and you can put other things in there. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, from, yeah. So our, our passport holder, it's called the borderless passport holder. Mm -hmm. Uh, Borderless suggests, you know, an international, you know, across borders um, theme. And, and also it's designed to carry a passport, but when you're not traveling, it's designed to carry a notebook. Mm -hmm. And we happen to also make a notebook um, and it's called let's go. Um, You can't see it, but I can um, see it when you twist it. I saw the reflection. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. You can see it. And, and the idea here is that, is that you can, I mean, you can go on Amazon or whatever and buy notebooks that will fit into a passport. Um, but most companies, um, that I'm familiar with, like the well-known brands that make notebooks, they, they have a different form factor that does not fit into a passport. And so my goal was to make something that you can put into a front pocket, like all of my accessories from the first collection, uh, the flex card holder, the daybreaker billfold wallet and the borderless passport notebook holder, you know, they're just the right size to put into your front pocket. And so mm-hmm. when you're traveling, it's the perfect, um, product to carry. Um, you can, it has two slots for carrying, let's say business cards, credit cards, um, and your passport. And it's, it's, it's nice to have, like, do you have to have a passport? Holder? I've, I've traveled my life with it. So now it's like, I have one that I can carry. Right. Sure. It's, it's just a nice to have, like we don't live in a world where we only have things that are, that are, um, must haves, but it's just a nice, nice feature to have. And, and, I've, and since releasing it, I've gotten lots of positive feedback that, that it really helps people organize their, their products, you know, their, their, their business cards, mm-hmm. you know, they may not carry a wallet, you know, I'm, I'm giving consumers a choice. Like, like maybe you want the passport holder for when you're traveling and maybe you don't want to have a passport and you just want to have the, the billfold wallet. And mm-hmm. so, um, but the borderless itself, it's, it's also very minimal. It's about seven millimeters thin when it's empty. It's also very lightweight. Um, and it has the same minimal, minimal design lines. You can hold your passport in there. And then when you're not, you can just load in a notebook, which is great. Like when I think about my, my previous life working at Nike and there's like multiple meetings during the day, like typically like I'm carrying like a <laughs> nine by 12 spiral bound, uh, notebook with me and taking lots of notes, but you know, this would, this something small, that's the size of a passport. When you're walking around town, you don't want to carry around a big, you know, trapper keeper. Yeah. Especially if you have multiple meetings and you're, you're going from, yeah, I guess if for people that, you know, may not work in a corporate environment where there's, I mean, even Nike, there's multiple buildings. So you're walking from one building to another and it's kind of a drag to carry a big, you know, a big nine by 12, or even smaller, you know, smaller things. So if there's something that you can put in your pocket, you know, you, you know, you, let's say you have a meeting at 11 and then it's lunchtime. You just pop that in your pocket. You don't have to worry about carrying it. So, so for me, I was thinking versatility and, and a way to enable that was to also come up with, with a small notebook that fits in that. Mm -hmm. I'm curious. And a lot of times I'll just, yes. Oh no, no, go ahead. Finish what you're going to say. Oh, I was going to say a lot of times I'll just like consumers, like my customers are buying this, like, 
if they buy the borderless uh, passport notebook holder, uh, they'll usually buy a three pack of this or a single item of, you know, of this to put in there. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes if I'm feeling generous, I'll just pop one in there anyway. I'll just pop a freebie in there for them. Cool. So how are these constructed? What are they? Cause they're not, I was looking at it and it was kind of blowing my mind. It looked like they put yes. between this weird press and they're creating it and there's like no stitching and yes. all this stuff. So how, how does that work? Yes. Yes. Well, it, yeah. So, so I'll tell you what the end result is. The end result is there's no stitching. There's no seams. Mm-hmm. The material is bonded together and it's all done through RF welding. So RF welding is radio frequency welding, mm-hmm. which, which is a very high frequency that creates a vibration. Okay. And so there's, there's a metal tool. There's two pieces. There's maybe a top and a bottom. And the material goes in between the the tool and it vibrates at 70,000 times a second or 80,000 times a second. I don't know exactly. And that kind of focused vibration, I think it makes a humming sound. Mm-hmm. It creates heat and pressure in that specific area and it bonds the two pieces of material together and they become one and they're inseparable. Huh. And in order to be able to, to weld material together, you have to use a special material. And so the material that I'm using is a, is a TPU coated polyester. Okay. And, and TPU is a thermopolymer urethane and thermopolymer means it's a, it's a polymer or plastic kind of material that can, can be manipulated by heat. Mm -hmm. And so that's what a thermopolymer urethane is. And it's, it's, it's a non-vulcanized material. So like rubber tires are vulcanized, mm-hmm. like they've already been baked through that heat process. So you can't, you can't take a, like a tire and RF weld it to another tire, right. uh, or you can't take rubber sheets of material and, and apply them to each other through this RF welding process. It has to be this, this special formulation where it, and I'm getting, if I'm getting really tough, te- no, 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 I'm actually, I'm, I'm interested in this. This is fascinating to me. So it's, it's a non-vulcanized rubber that in the RF welding process becomes vulcanized um, and melts and cures in that, in that one focused area. Okay. Uh, and it creates, a, it, creates a, it creates a bond. So, so the, the benefit of this process is the, you know, you're, you're left with something that's very minimal. Mm-hmm. There's no stitching. There's no painted edges that you typically find on leather. There's no glue or other adhesive that's used or other, you know, a lot of times um, – there are, there's different kinds of tape that you use mm-hmm. and you like, you do whether woven or non-woven material, you apply this like tape and with heat and pressure that melts and it creates a bond. So, so you don't have any of that. It's, it's all just, um, the material, um, changing when it's RF welded. And so, so um, in other words, it's I, vegan friendly and, uh, super sciencey. Yes, yes it, it definitely is. It's both. Yeah. And, and like going like, you know, like in the brief that I, that I created for myself, I wasn't going after vegan, but sure. after, after I, you know, presented it to so many people, then I was made aware of, oh, wow, like there's no animal products in this. And so you can promote it as a vegan product. And so, and so I have, and I, I, you know, personally, I don't, I'm, I eat plant-based, I would say 90, well, I eat cheese. So 
Maybe that, maybe that's for the, the end of the show, right? Where cheese we talk is about delicious. Food. We'll talk about that too. But yeah, <laughs> cheese, is, cheese is delicious. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm all about you know like eating plant based where I can, and and um, and so yeah, I'm I'm all for for that vegan aspect too. Um, but the reason that I picked this direction to begin with is is I just think that like leather is leather is heavy leather. Like I remember 20 years ago, yeah. it's bulky. It's heavy. Like uh, 20 years ago, I was. Um, in a facility where they, they made, uh, they made holsters for law enforcement mm-hmm. and they had changed the game. This company had changed the game on holsters for law enforcement because they had replaced leather with compression molded, uh, ballistic nylon, mm-hmm. which you know, is at that time was more of a game changer. Now it's, sure, it's, it's fairly common. Yeah. You can get it in any backpack. <laughs> totally. So it's just, it's just a heavy, a heavy denier, uh, uh, a densely woven, heavy denier uh, nylon mm-hmm. that is laminated with like some foam, and that material is is pushed over a three dimensional form, and with heat and pressure, it takes on that shape. Mm-hmm. So these these um, these holsters that were made out of this um, this ballistic ni- compression molded ballistic nylon were like a fraction of the weight of nylon. Mm-hmm. I mean of, of leather. They were, um, and then they, they did, didn't cost as much and they didn't require any maintenance because leather requires, uh, you, you know, you have, it's like a skin. It's, it's, it's not, it's not alive. You got to take care it, of it. You've got to take care of it. It can, it can get dry. You have to keep it clean. Just like, you know, you put lotion on your skin. Like you have to, you have to condition leather. You have to maintain it. You have to, uh, keep it just the right, um, humidity. It can't be too wet. It, you know, it has to dry out if it gets wet mm-hmm. and it's heavy. And so, so it was a game changer for, for that industry, I believe. Um, and so f- for me, like I see RF welding as kind of a game changer for accessories because you're able to achieve the same, you know, people pay a lot of money for leather accessories because of the craftsmanship that goes into it, right? Someone with a lot of experience who's done this for who knows how long has like skived the leather edges. They put a little bit of glue after they skived the leather edge and they fold it, excuse me, they fold it over and then they, maybe they tamp it down and then they buff the edges, they paint the edges. So by the time that you have this beautifully finished leather wallet, someone spent hours on it, maybe potentially. I don't know. I'm not in that business. Sure. But they've spent a lot of time. And so you're paying for that. And so from my point of view, I'm like, I'm like, that's great. But like, I think that that we can move into an area where we're using higher performance materials that are lighter weight and we can achieve a higher level of finish. Mm-hmm. And so so these products they don't require, you know, like super skilled people to make because there's tools that enable, you know, there's tooling that, that, you know, you die cut it. And so once you die cut it, it's not being cut by hand or there's no skilled craftsman polishing the edges or doing all these things. So you're relying on, you know, technology to achieve the same level of finish as you would using this other old world kind of mentality. So I, I kind of see, you know, things like my first collection is kind of the, the future state of, one potential future state, right? It's a flavor. I mean, there's people that are always going to prefer whether it's like, you know, leather or a woven material or whatever. Yeah. It could cork, you know, cork is another, you know, cork. I could see that as being another kind of, um, sustainable kind of future forward product. But, but this is kind of the first step that I've taken 
um, because it's minimal, because it has a high level of finish, because it's lightweight, uh, and functionally great for, for small accessories. You know, I remember a trip to Europe or something, and this was before the internet, and I was reading something in a book, like a travel book, or maybe mm-hmm. it was a newspaper, about like like how to thwart pickpocketers. Mm-hmm. And the feedback that they were giving was, put a rubber band around your wallet. Because if you put a rubber band around your wallet, it's gonna it's not going to slide out of your pocket easily, and and you're going to be able to keep your wallet. Or if someone you know takes a Yankee or your your pocket, you're gonna you're gonna be aware of it, and and it's not going to happen. And so this is like a big rubber band. Okay, so and it's so it's got some grip to it. It's it's it, it yeah it feels and and one thing that I always tell people, and it's because I've heard this from consumers, is that it feels great in your hand. It has a rubbery. Um, texture to it and it has a, a micro kind of uh, texture that's that's like a, like a, a finely woven nylon or polyester that okay. mimics the texture or a diamond texture I don't know I'd have to look at it really close but it, it but it's it, it gives you kind of an enhanced sensation when you run your finger over it um, but that texture and the material also make it so it sticks in your pocket so it's really well suited for for travel because it's not going to fall out of your pocket. Mm -hmm. It's really well suited for doing things while you're in motion, whether it's like cycling, skateboarding, running, uh, you know, any kind of, um, activity where you're moving, um, it's not going to fall out of your pocket. Mm -hmm. And because it's, it's a a polymer coated material, um, it's, it's hydrophobic, like water will beat on it and it's water resistant. It's waterproof. Mm-hmm. So if you're sweating, if you're doing an activity in water, it's not going to get wet. Or if, if it does get wet, you just shake it off and it dries. You're not going to end up with a clammy, balmy leather. <laughs> I think everybody, or not everybody, but a lot of people remember their little league experience when they're like chewing on the end of their baseball glove and that, yes. that string and it gets that weird texture. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, I've, 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 I had a, this is going to be gross, but in college I had a pair of Birkenstocks that started to feel that way uh, to date myself of when I was in college, um, yes. that started to feel that way on the bottom. And I was like, yep, definitely time to get rid of these. <laughs> yeah, totally. So yeah. So like now that, I mean, I've, I've tested these myself, one version or another for the past few years. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now they're, now that there's, you know, lots of them out in the wild, uh, when I do get feedback from, from people that, I, that either reach out to me or I reach out to them cause I'm eager to know like, sure. like Hey, what do you think? Um, and it, if, if I see pictures of it, if they post it on their social media, you know, they still look box fresh, you know, three months after they've, they've had it and, and the products will continue to, to, to look and feel and work box fresh because, because of the material, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. really rugged. It's really durable. Um, the nature of the material doesn't, it won't stretch just like like leather will stretch over time. Gotcha. Right. This yeah. product will kind of form a little bit, but will, it will not stretch. Um, the edges may fray a little bit, but it, it takes just a second with like a cigarette lighter or just your stove, just run it over it. And all those little pieces will just melt away. Um, and technically you could throw in the wash. So if hmm. it gets like, you know, fingerprints or, you know, grease or whatever, um, you can spend two minutes and bring it like back to its like box fresh state. So if my kids get peanut butter on it, I can clean it. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I mean, yeah. And, and actually like, you know, you could even use the passport holder 
I mean, just, you know, it's, it's great. You know, like, it's great. I love, I love this because for me, like my design process, part of it is like, you know, like me thinking about stuff, sketching, looking mm-hmm. at the computer, pulling images, but it's also like talking, talking about it, like talking about the product sure. and answering questions. But I mean, it could even be like a tray, like, you know, this passport holder, you can, it could be like a clean, you know, like a clean <laughs> surface to put something on. Yeah. Yeah. So if like, if you have your, your, your tray table, uh, when you're on a flight, you can just open this thing up and, and, uh, use it as a, as a plate, you know, if, if it's clean. Sure. <laughs> Not necessarily recommending that, but it could be done. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it, but if you were in a pinch, you know, and if, if, if you had a child and yeah, yeah. And they were, they were, you know, they were eating like, you know, animal crackers or something and you didn't have, you know, a napkin or something. Yeah. This would be a much better choice than, than uh, a tray table. Oh God. I don't even want to think about what's on tray tables. Well, yes. <laughs> so you you've released this product line. Do you have plans for future product lines or are you still seeing how this does and getting this out in the market before you really dive into something new? Yeah, totally. I think the answer to that kind of changes every day. I would love to be able to peel myself away from everything that I'm doing to grow my business and to go into product creation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I spend most of my days like, working on ways that I can get people to learn about my brand, like getting in touch with retailers so they can carry my products. Mm -hmm. So then tapping into a new, you know, a new uh, consumer base, um, thinking about, um, what like online websites, blogs, uh, magazines, media, you know, what are the venues that would be a good fit for me to share Wayfinder so that new people can learn about them. Mm-hmm. because from the, the people that have learned about my product so far, they love them. They're like, this is great. I love it. And so I'm confident that, you know, like, like, you know, taking that thin slice of let's say a hundred or 200 people or whatever it is that if they all have this kind of, um, perspective on my products, then if the next thousand people or 2000 people or 10,000 people, they're going to have a similar kind of reaction, positive reaction. I just have to reach out. And so my focus has been, marketing and getting retailers on board mm-hmm. uh, so that I can grow the brand so that then I can introduce more products because yeah, I mean, ultimately like, like it's almost, it's a little discouraging. Like when you work for a big brand, like especially like Nike, like you create great product and instantly it's, it's in retailer, you know, retailers are carrying it around yeah. the world you know, and it's out there. Everybody and, already knows about it. So the work is being done for you a lot of time. Yeah. And it's, it's like, and it's super motivating because then you can go to the next thing and then you can get like, you know, like, all right, great. This is out there. And you, you get lots of feedback and you're like, all right, great. I can take this feedback and, and I'm already working on the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, when you're starting a brand on your own, you're like a needle in a haystack and you could have the most incredible product um, in the world. And I'm not saying my products are, are the most incredible or, or not, but but the bottom line is, is that, is that as a brand starting out, um, it's more important to get your brand out there than it is to make the most you know amazing products. Like, because like if I make more, like more incredible product, I have a relative idea of how well it's going to do based on the number of people that know about my brand. Sure. And, and, you know, uh, you know, earlier I mentioned that I didn't go into backpacks and duffels 
because that was taking more of a risk. Mm-hmm. And that there's, there's, you know, there's more of a financial commitment to commit to a thousand backpacks than there are committing to a thousand little card holders, you know? Right. Right. And so, so for me, like I have to grow my brand awareness before I can think about introducing new products. Sure. I think about it and I get excited about it all the time, but realistically, um, I, I really have to just get my brand over the top with, with more individuals around the world. Mm-hmm. Get rid of the financial risk that you have currently to, uh, invest in something new. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because ultimately like the reason that I started with these small products, as I mentioned earlier was to, was to, it was a vehicle for promoting the brand. Like sure. I want people to fall in love with the brand and what it stands for. You know, the ability to we're like, we're making products to help shape your future, mm-hmm. to help you carry less and to improve your life through carry products. And so the minimal viable product for that has been these small accessories. Um, and, and down the road it'll, it'll be bags, but, um, but more people have to know about my brand so that, uh, so that I'm not taking as big of a risk. I completely understand that. And it's, and it's, and it's the infrastructure. It's building that infrastructure. Like I need to build a bigger infrastructure. Like I think I'm, my thought has been that it's, it's easier to get retailers to commit to small products like this Mm -hmm. than there are big products. But once consumers, retailers, like all the kind of like venues where I can sell my products. Um, once they're sold on these smaller products, then I think it will be very easy to introduce other items. So if, if I have multiple retailers established and they're stoked on the small accessories and I have a backpack, they're like, yes, like what else do you have? You know? And so, so that's what I'm working on now. And, and when I feel more comfortable having that infrastructure in place, and having a greater brand awareness, then I can start thinking about backpack. Gotcha. Well, when when you get to that point, let me know, and we'll talk again. <laughs> um, Sounds great. Real quick, because uh, we're kind of getting close to our time, I want to ask you some kind of rapid fire questions about food that I ask at the end of every episode. Um, yes, let's do it. So what is kind of like your earliest food memory? What's the first, it can be the first meal that you had, or it's generally the first thing that comes to mind. First meal. That's a really good question. I, I, I can't think of my first meal, but when you said first, like, like, so, so my background is Armenian and I'm Lebanese mm-hmm. and I came to this country when I was four years old in mm-hmm. the in late seventies. And I was born in Beirut, Lebanon. And mm-hmm. you and you may know that there was a civil war in Lebanon, and that's yep. why my family left. And so, so, so my fondest memories of food are kind of Mediterranean and Armenian cuisine. Sure. And I I love that. And and when I was uh, and I still remember like so I left Beirut when I was four years old, or I had my fifth birthday party birthday in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, but I so I have some memories. A little of bit, yeah. In Beirut, a little bit. And one vivid memory that I had is my grandfather had like a department store selling, um, uh, like women's intimate apparel, slippers, things like that. Mm -hmm. And my dad would take me, take me to work. Like, so sometimes I would go to work with him and I remember there were street vendors Mm -hmm. that would sell a variety of different things. And one of the items was called Meneish 
And menage is just like a pizza with uh, it's and you may you're, you you may be familiar with like a, a seasoned herb called zahter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or zahtar. Or I don't know. I, there's there's probably various ways of saying it. So so the street vendors would make this, and it was probably the equivalent of like twenty five cents. But it's they, they would just roll out this dough. It's probably about the size of like a like an you know like nine inches in diameter, sure. six six to nine inches in diameter. And it was it was just this dough, and they would make this paste out of the zahtar with the the olive oil. They would slather it on the dough, and they'd put it in these little ovens. It would bubble up, and I would eat it fresh. You know, like it's still like super warm. Like they just made it like five minutes ago. It's like made to order, right? This sounds delicious. And so, <laughs> and so, like yeah, I have you know, like I had no idea that I'd be talking about this today. But yeah, your your question brought it up. But yeah, some of my earliest memories of of like a food item would be that. Yeah, no, that's perfect. Manaish from a street vendor just as it was made. And it's like, it's like chewy and savory mm. and it's a little sticky because of the olive oil, you know, and it just, it's, and then, you know, it's just, it's so good. Yeah. You're, so you're good. making me hungry now. Just talking about it. It sounds delicious. <laughs> so what, what is your, what's kind of your go-to comfort food? If you've had like a crap day, and you just you want to turn your brain off and sit down in front of the TV and eat something. Oh, it's, it's a dangerous question. Um, I you know recently so so for for the past uh, three or four months I've 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 kind of moved into a keto is it a keto diet is mm-hmm. it keto keto yeah. Um, yeah so so a lot of what I eat is like fat and no like no carbs or minimal carbs sure. And and reduce not a whole lot of protein, and and then also like I, I may may have mentioned earlier that like I don't eat a whole lot of animal products like no meat, mm-hmm. um, some cheese, no milk, no, like no eggs unless it's maybe baked in something. Sure. So it's kind of limited. So so like what that looks like for me now is like like a handful of nuts, like <laughs> like macadamia nuts or Brazil nuts or cashews, you know. Mm. And so that's kind of, um, I, I haven't had a whole lot of cheat days since I started this a few months ago. Um, but I'm totally stoked on that or, or just kind of like quick and dirty things that I make in a toaster oven, like tofurkey, like I'll, I'll layer tofurkey, which is like, uh, I think it's a soy based or yeah, a wheat yeah, based, so uh, yeah. cold cut product. Yeah. yeah. And so I'll, I'll, I'll lay that out on a piece of foil in the toaster oven and then I'll put um, cheese, like real cheese. So that's one of the things that I eat. Sure. Um, and then after, and then, and then I'll drizzle a little bit of, uh, like pasta sauce, just a little bit cause it has carbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll eat that and it's so good. It's just, it's just like, it just hits all, you know, it's like savory. Um, um it, just, it just has all the flavor and the different texture. I actually had that last night. So gotcha. Before it's quick and dirty, and it's just it's, it's kind of special. Before you started doing keto, what it, would it have been? Oh, it would have been anything like a bag of chips, you know, like just <laughs> half a pizza, pizza. carbs. It'd be carbs, <laughs> you know. That's what it would be. And and you know, I have a I have a uh, my daughter. She's nine, and uh, my my partner girlfriend. She's uh, she loves carbs. Like she mm. loves bread and butter and pasta. And my daughter, she loves pizza and pasta <laughs> and, and burritos, you know, like just like carb heavy stuff. So it's like, 
So like I live in a house where like carb is king <laughs> and like, and like I was, it's like servant, you know, like I sure. was a servant for so long. And so, um, so like three or four months ago, I broke, I broke that chain and it's been great. Like, I like it's, it's been, it's been incredible, but yeah, th- that would be, yeah, whatever carbs are laying around, like yeah, chips, uh, if you know, like pasta, uh, that stuff, yeah. Yeah. And I, and it, it's, it's refreshing that, that it's kind of a blur right now. Like I don't, I don't like <laughs> good, <laughs> good. I don't know that I would have the willpower having people around me who weren't, uh, doing the same thing to stick through with it. So good, good on you for being able to, uh, to stick to it. Yes. So what, what go ahead. No, no, I wasn't going to say anything. Oh, um, so what is your death row meal? Like, you know, that, that last meal that you can eat, um, you're not doing keto anymore. What, it's whatever goes that last thing that you're going to have. Yeah, totally. So, so, I mean, I think this would kind of fit with keto and it's something that I like now that I like before, but, and I hope that I don't have to be in a situation where it's death row, but like, well, yeah, <laughs> decad- just a decadent meal. Um, I love salmon. I love, love, love salmon. So, mm. so a nice, like, uh, eat like, a uh, steel, uh, st- uh sorry, st- uh, steelhead, mm-hmm. which is technically a trout that yep. lives salmon, right? So like steelhead or king salmon, like fresh, wild you know, just cooked to perfection. Um, that would be incredible. So I can so get I down with any, that. That's good. Anything involving salmon. Cause I, yeah, I mean like, I don't know if, if other people on your show would be like, Oh, some sort of like steak or something like I haven't had, uh, you know, like beef or steak or something like that in probably over 20, 25 years. Oh wow. Um, but, but yeah, like just a beautiful filet of salmon with just whatever vegetables, mashed potatoes, all that stuff that would, that would, that would be my jam. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, Hrog, thank you so much for taking the time. Where can people find uh, more about you online and more about Wayfinder? Yes. So, so uh, they can find out about my professional, like some of like my previous work, or if they were interested in hiring me for a consulting engagement, uh, harag.net, H-R-A-G.net. And then uh, Wayfinder, uh, you can find us on Instagram at Wayfinder Carry, mm-hmm. uh, carrying a product, C-A-R-R-Y, uh, or WayfinderCarry.com is our is our website. Awesome. Thank you again so much for taking the time to chat with me tonight. I really appreciate it. And this was a lot of fun. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great to be on your show. And yeah, I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Yeah. Go out and break some bread. Let's do it. <laughs> you can find out more about Hrog on hrog.net. That's H R A G.net. And be sure to check out the links in the show notes for more ways to keep up with him. I hope you liked this episode of Feasting on Design. Let me know what you think. And if you like it, leave me a review over on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Visit feastingondesign.com to catch up on the archives of the Creative South podcast. Get some cool swag like t-shirts and stickers that are on sale right now for 50% off with free shipping on orders over $25 when you use the code free shipping, all one word. Plus, you can keep up with the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Feast on Design. And I'm at Jay Frostholm on Dribble, Twitter, on Instagram, or over on my website, IldisDesign.com.